0: Every person who can vote should vote on Election Day. I'm Brian Lehrer. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast, bringing you the best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear smart conversations from shows like On the Media, the New Yorker Radio Hour, The Takeaway, and yes, The Brian Lehrer Show. Plus, great reporting from our WNYC newsroom. We'll give you the information you need so you can choose wisely on Election Day. Welcome
1: to Politics Brief. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway. As the country turned its eyes to the tumultuous confirmation process of Judge Brett Kavanaugh, the culture of Washington, D.C. itself has come under new scrutiny. The Capitol is sometimes described in, well, unflattering terms by the rest of the country. And that Washington bubble, that elitist boys club that values and uplifts men in politics and not women, well, there's some truth there. And that's according to my next guest, who was in the center of it all back in the 90s and has watched DC's evolution when it comes to men, women, and power. Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun is a former U.S. Senator from Illinois and former U.S. Ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa. And she was also the first female African-American U.S. Senator. I asked, why she decided to run for Senate back in 1992.
0: Well, our incumbent senator, uh, who I knew actually, had uh, announced that he was inclined to vote for the uh, Supreme Court nomination of Justice Clarence Thomas. And this was at a time in my life when I was particularly struck by the difference between the Thomas nomination and Thurgood Marshall and the Warren Court, because my entire life had been made possible by the Warren Court. And so uh I was annoyed that he didn't understand why this was uh this was not uh, a good thing and that my uh constituency my community generally was upset about it and he just didn't seem to get it and so I decided to run for the Senate uh I was qualified for the job and I and I won I wound up winning uh because this other guy came into the race and paid his, spent a gazillion dollars of his own money and that that made the difference, and of course, women were so at that point upset about the way Anita Hill had been treated in the hearings, and so uh, I got a boost from
1: that, and I won the I won the statewide election, and it was a breakthrough. And of course, when you arrived in Washington, did you have any initial impressions of the city or its people, other than vortex of evil? <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, Ambassador.
0: <laughs> Uh, I tend to be very straightforward about things and to tell people what I think. I mean, you know, Washington was a different universe. I come from Illinois, and I th- always thought that, you know, obviously the Chicago was the epicenter of the world, and and so I, it was an adjustment really for me to to understand the kabuki that the uh, that Washington requires. Uh, that is to say, how people interpret things is different than how they are interpreted here at the local level here in Chicago. And that was that was a learning experience for me. I'm glad I came through it and survived with my at least my life intact. And so uh, hopefully um, more. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes,
1: yes. (laughs) And uh, Ambassador, you were uh, the first, along with Senator Barbara Mikulski, the first woman to wear pants on the Senate floor. Can you take us back to that day? I can. And here's the thing. You know, what's that? Ignorance is bliss.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, wa- I went to work. I went to the Senate floor not knowing there was this unwritten rule that women had to wear dresses. I didn't know. I thought I was looking kind of sharp that day. I had on a, a, a pantsuit and it was matched and I thought it looked really nice. And, uh, and, and it caused this great stir when I went to vote. And I had no idea what was going on. Then some of the women staffers came to me and said, well, we told them that if if the senators can wear pants, then so should we. <laughs> so it was like, okay, a breakthrough. So I was really happy about the the outcomes from that. But it was not like I
1: intended to wear pants to make a statement. I was just, you know, going to work. It's just going to work and, and, and suddenly it happens. And, and you also ran for president in 2004. I'm wondering what was the reaction then? We saw a very powerful reaction to our uh, the Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Obviously, we saw a very powerful reaction to Geraldine Ferraro's candidacy from when I was a kid. So what was the reaction in Washington then? Did things change for you when you ran for president?
0: Well they did on the one hand um, in, the, in the in the country generally I thought I was being very well received and treated very nicely I was always really impressed when fathers would bring, I had one guy brought his daughter and said he just wanted her to see that a woman could run for president and that it was okay. My little niece actually was, had inspired me. She said, oh, but Auntie Carol, all the presidents are boys. And uh, she was 11 at the time. And I said, oh, sweetie, girls can be president too. And then I went out and talked to her father and, and, and my brother said, what's the matter? I said, I just lied to Claire. He said, what do you mean you lied <laughs> I said, I told her girls can be president too. He said, so what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I'm going to run. So that was kind of one of the things that got me over the threshold with that particular campaign. In Washington, there were those who said I was delusional, I mean, they knew I'm not a gazillionaire. I didn't have millions of dollars to put into a presidential campaign. It was truly a grassroots kind of effort. And and one thing I have subsequently learned is that there's no such thing as a grassroots presidential campaign. Uh, you really have to have the resources to win. And and so, but it was a very positive thing for me in the end. I worked myself into pneumonia, but other than that, it was a good thing, and I'm glad I did it.
1: But Ambassador, why do you think this is, I mean, I feel like as well, you know, you you were experiencing the Anita Hill Anita Hill trial. Hearings inspired you to run for office, and I'm watching them myself and thinking we haven't come that far. If we're still here today, why do you think the message to women uh, in Washington is still so fraught?
0: Well, again, we're talking, we're looking at change, which of course is the thing that happens in in life more than anything else, and 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 some people, Washington is is essentially a conservative place, uh, conservative in the old-fashioned sense of the word. So it's resistant to change. So change hasn't really happened as much as some of us would have expected or hoped, but it is happening. And so I want to be optimistic and positive about this. The change is happening. It may be incremental and slow, too slow for people like me, I'd like to see, you know, half and half. <laughs> I'd like mm-hmm. to see women elected across the board. But if that hasn't gotten, it hasn't happened yet. But it will. And so I think particularly as young women come along, they are not content to be relegated to the sidelines or to the or to the ladies' chambers. Uh, they expect to be able to participate in governance just like anybody else. They expect, in the words, of, the immortal words of the late Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. So <laughs> uh that really at the end of the day is what it is that we're looking at and i think that the politicians who, who in, at the end of the day every politician follows who what where they think the the voters are and so they will make the changes and the process the parties will change in response to what these you know, what women want
1: and I wanted to get a second voice in here. Cheryl Gay Stolberg is another observer of the inside world of Washington. She's a congressional correspondent in D.C. for The New York Times, where she's been for more than two decades. Cheryl, first to you, what were your early days like in the Capitol as a reporter?
2: Well, I didn't arrive in Washington until um, 1996, and I, I actually worked for the Los Angeles Times then. And in the mornings, every once in a while, we would do these C-SPAN roundtable breakfasts, and they would film in our bureau. And I remember that there were so few women in the bureau that they had to strategically place us around the table so that it didn't look like the whole place was full of men. And the whole place really was full of men. And that was really reflected, as you well know, in the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings, where Anita Hill, an African-American woman, found herself staring across the dais at an all-white, all-male judiciary committee. And, you know, some things have changed in Washington, but frankly, not a lot.
1: And Cheryl, that's a perfect segue for one of the questions I was going to ask, because I was also watching the hearings myself. Again, I was in high school uh, when Anita Hill was, um, the Anita Hill hearings were happening. And when both of you watch what's happening today and you compare it to what happened in 1991, how does that make you feel, Ambassador?
0: I'll be honest there has been change and 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 this has been 20 25 years now uh, since I was in the Senate and uh uh and the Anita Hill hearings happened but there has been change and I like to think that it's been positive change on the one hand or in the first place the democratic side of the judiciary committee is a lot more diverse now than it was then the republicans unfortunately still have that problem I mean they had to go out and rent a hire a woman to come in and stand in just to be a female f- face for them and I've I've suggested that I, that they really need to consider uh, supporting Republican women, so they can have some diversity in that caucus and not have the have these all male panels, whether it's on judiciary or on finance. I mean it makes a difference having a woman at the table and in the room. Uh, it makes a difference in the conversation and what gets observed and how things get interpreted. So I'm hopeful that, uh, that the, the change will continue in the direction of inclusion of women. We are citizens of this great country. We are half the population, and there's no reason why we wouldn't particip- shouldn't participate in policy making for our country.
1: And Cheryl, you've written about the reasons that harassment can flourish in politics. Tell us a little bit about what you found.
2: One reason that harassment can flourish in politics is because political organizations, unlike businesses, revolve around a single person. And it's a person who, um, if they leave, the whole operation ceases to exist, right? Like if you have a company and your CEO gets fired, well, you get a new CEO and the company still goes on making widgets. But if you're in a political office and somebody makes a claim against, say, the, the senator or the congressman and they go, everybody loses their jobs. And that's one reason that women are... And men who get harassed are really reluctant to report harassment. And also, as we know, Washington is this culture where, you know, lawmakers come and they're away from their families. And, you know, it's a kind of a very compressed situation where people are working very closely together intensely for long periods of time. And you've got these members who are far from home and, you know, while the cat's away sort of thing. Um. So those are a couple of reasons why um, harassment persists in politics, perhaps even um, to a greater degree than in the rest of American life.
1: And I'm curious, Cheryl, I want to you said, you know, at some of these C-SPAN meetings, there were almost, you know, they had to there were very few women at the table. I'm wondering how emblematic is that of a cultural issue within Washington, D.C.? I mean, we hear lots about the old boys club. I'm curious who's in it. What power does it have? How much of this old boys club is sort of defined by things like fraternities, like elite schooling, and really money?
2: I think the ambassador actually had a correct point. Things have changed in Washington, but in a lopsided way. So on the Democratic side, we have more women and more people of color represented in Congress and the halls of power. But on the Republican side, Um, not so much. In the Senate Judiciary Committee, all the 11 Republican members are male. And you do still see um, people rising up through the ranks of Washington like Brett Kavanaugh. He is really a creature of this sort of elite kind of Washington insider, you know, prep school culture. His father was a lobbyist. He lives in Chevy Chase, which is a very exclusive kind of wealthy suburb of Washington or at least that's where that's where he grew up and he kind of methodically rose through the ranks you know worked for the Bush v. Gort uh, team in Florida he worked for the Bush White House then he you know became a judge and and in fact, it's kind of interesting. Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, worried about this. He thought that Kavanaugh's long career in Washington and also his lengthy record as a judge um, would be a problem in getting him com- him confirmed. And I think he was kind of right. So maybe it's not always an advantage to be part of the old boy um, culture.
0: Ambassador. I would point out that this is not a partisan issue. It's not. The difference between the Republican and the Democratic sides of the aisle is obvious to anybody who can, who can who's paying attention. But it's not a partisan issue. It goes to the heart of what a democracy is supposed to be. Democracy means bottoms-up governance, that the people have something to say about who makes their, the rules for their lives. And by the people, that's supposed to mean everybody particularly at this point. When the Constitution was first written, I was not included. Black people were not included. Women were not included. Uh, you know, blacks were three-fifths of a person, frankly. Uh, but that changed over time, and now we're at the point where I think women are beginning to say, we want to participate on an equal footing with the men. We don't see any reason why we're being excluded from this in this environment in which the rules are made. And that, it, at the end of the day, this the Supreme Court nomination is a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. The women should have an equal right to say what they think about that appointment, about the nominees, what they think about the process, and have as much input as anybody else because they will be affected on to the next generation uh, by whatever decisions the Supreme Court makes. And so I just think that that's why these things are so important and why it should not be a rush to judgment. There ought to be a considered approach, a considered uh, uh, analysis of the nominee's not only credentials, but capability and
1: character. Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun is a former U.S. senator from Illinois and the first female African-American U.S. senator. And Cheryl Gay Stolberg is a congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Politics
0: Brief. If you want more, go to WNYC.org elections.